Hey everyone, Artie here, just with a quick plug before the show begins. We are just around the corner from the release of Health Communism on October 18th. B and I are really thrilled for this to be finally getting out there and for everyone to finally get their hands on it. So if you've pre-ordered the book already, thank you so much. If you haven't yet, pre-orders help immensely for first-time authors like B and I. As of the release of this episode, you should still be able to get a pre-order directly from Verso on Verso.com for 40% off, which is probably the cheapest that it will be. So get one for yourself, get one for your friends, get one for your enemies, mail some copies directly to, I don't know, the CDC or the Center for American Progress, and enjoy the show. support the show and get access to the second weekly bonus episode, become a patron at patreon.com slash deathpanelpod. And if you'd like to help us out a little bit more, share the show with your friends, post about your favorite episodes, pre-order Health Communism, or request it at your local library, and follow us at deathpanel underscore. So for today's show, Artie, Phil, and I are joined by friend of the panel and returning guest, Nate Holdren. Nate is the author of Injury Impoverished, Workplace Accidents, Capitalism, and Law in the Progressive Era, and he is back today to talk about a recent piece that he wrote for a symposium at Harvard's Petrie Flom Center called Pandemic Nihilism, Social Murder, and the Banality of Evil. Nate, welcome back to the Death Panel. Thanks for having me. I'm excited to be here. It's always so nice to have you here, Nate. And, you know, so full disclosure, all of us on this episode today were part of the symposium. Um, Artie and I have a piece in it, as does Phil. So we're biased. Symposium cabal. Yeah, but it, you know, despite that bias, I think this is still objectively a great series of short essays that Chloe Reichel and Ben Barsky curated, which are essentially all sort of about health law and policy during the pandemic. Um, there are pieces by Dan Berger, Stevie Wilson, and the 9971 Study Group, Andrea Armstrong, Doran Dorfman, Martha Lincoln, Vincent Sherrill, and a bunch of other people. With the at the time of this recording, there are still more pieces to be published. So. We're here today to talk about Nate's piece in particular because it engages so well with some really important ideas about how power works, myths about the ruling class, and rejects the idea that history always looks back with an honest or accurate judgment about who is to blame for mass suffering, disability, death, and why. And so, Nate, the last time that we had you on, it was to discuss a different piece that you wrote about the idea of social murder, which is something that features, again, in this essay as well. And the second paragraph of this essay has a really powerful and important line that I just want to start us out with, quote, the nihilism that the Biden administration displays is both convenient and necessary for the personnel who help intensify the avoidable harms of the pandemic, which amount to what Friedrich Engels called social murder, unquote. So I think to start us off, um, we actually need to roll back a little further and give some context on what social murder means in case anyone needs a refresher is, you know, new to the idea. So, Nate, can you quickly set up the idea of social murder and then talk about what your overall argument in the piece is? Absolutely. So Friedrich Engels, as folks will probably know, was a close collaborator with Karl Marx. And in 1845, Engels published a book called The Condition of the Working Class in England. And it's the basically an overview 
of what it's like to be a working class person at that time. And he focused heavily on Manchester where he lived, but it's pretty synoptic. And he basically says working class people are dying much younger than they would otherwise, sometimes in industrial accidents, sometimes due to pollution, due to illness, due to uh, lack of sufficient health, nourishing food. And he lays out a, a variety of reasons why why this is happening. And he says this is essentially people are being murdered and they're being murdered by this form of society. And um, in what are, in my view, a personal opinion, the best bits of volume one of Capital, and there's a short chunk in volume three of Capital, Marx runs with that analysis and he cites heavily back to Engels and says, this is a great book. You should still read it. Um, and he builds on the analysis. And I came to this work late, but I now think that we can actually find in those works a theory of social murder as an ongoing social process. It's not a rhetorical gesture mm -hmm. to make people feel mad. It's a um, people should be mad about it, but it's a um, <laughs> it's like part of the social ontology of capital. Like if you have a capitalist system, you have profit, you have class domination, you have have exploitation. Also, you have social murder, and so it's a way to get at how capitalist societies will kill. And between Engels and Marx, they lay out a number of arenas in in uh, harms in workplaces, overwork, stress, the ways in which production spills into people's daily lives. Like uh, they talk about trains derailing and, and, and killing passengers and killing passersby and so on. But um, the theory is that COVID is a zoonotic event where it comes from animals and into humans. Like that, that is an example of kind of capitalism trespassing on these boundaries in ways that generate death. I mean, the fact that we're forced into work, I'm I'm back to work now in a where I'm the only one masking, right? The fact that we're forced to do that are all patterns that are not accidental within capitalism. They're woven in, they're baked in, and they they kill people literally and in in an acute way. Um my my first book, as I've talked about with you before, is about industrial accidents. And so that was sort of my entry point. But they they also kill people in a protracted way. Like we know empirically, there's like I think like a 15 year life expectancy gap. Maybe it's 10 year life expectancy gap along class lines in the United States. That's another form of social murder, and I, I think it's a useful concept because there's lots of other concepts that track onto facets of this reality, and those are all really helpful concepts as well. But um, social murder gathers them all together. I think and helps see that there's a systematicity to it, there's a logic to it, and that the social architecture is to blame. And once the immediate, like eventually the pandemic will end someday, but once the immediate example of whatever we're looking at ends, I think the concept's also helpful for helping us know that that's the logic sort of subsiding here in this place in time, but probably moving elsewhere. So it's as people who, people of conscience, we, we care about the immediate manifestation in our lives, but we also want that pattern to go away. We don't want to just see our loved ones survive. We want to see a less a society that isn't fundamentally murderous. I appreciate the way that you put that as a kind of capacity and that you're pointing to the fact that this is not something that, like, for example, appeared uh, at the turn of the century and then reappeared during COVID. This is obviously a kind of idea that describes, as you're saying, Nate, 
almost that this kind of disregard for life at a systemic level is a requirement of capitalism, that it's one of the reasons why capitalism can work as a system. It's one of the things that needs to be possible in order for capitalism to move forward under the kind of constraints and um, architecture that's currently set up, right? It involves needing people who are disposable, who can be put in circumstances that are essentially uh, detrimental to their long-term survival. And this is something that's just completely normalized as workplace conditions, right? I mean, if we think about things before the pandemic, for example, like the way that workers are exposed to all sorts of for example, like construction workers who are exposed to all sorts of particulates and all sorts of chemicals throughout their careers. A lot of these people are people who are like working 1099, who are never going to have benefits, who are never going to necessarily be in a union. Like some, uh, you know, some workers are organized, some are not. Are organized workers the only people who deserve protection from social murder? I think not. And I think it's one of those Systems, it's really important to try and interrogate if we want to actually understand how the pandemic sort of fits into the larger whole of our political economy, because ultimately, I think what's most important here is that, as you're saying, this is an important social and political force that is just a component of society. Thank you for that. And you know, this is part, I, part of why I was excited to come on the show is I wanted to think about this more. And I hadn't, this hadn't clicked until you said it just now that I think this is a concept of expansive solidarity as well, because it's, it's like, we don't want to just move the deaths around. We want to stop the killing. And so it's like, you're saying, is it only organized workers who should be protected? Absolutely not. But the, the pattern often is there's contestation over a particular manifestation of the lethal logic of capitalism. Understandably, people fight really hard over that and they, win some qualified victories, and then the process pops up somewhere else. Like, this is a terrible analogy, but it's how my brain works. It's like like whack-a-mole kind of like we, <laughs> we, we, and I don't mean that in a trivializing way, but like we, we smack down the especially lethal, we smack down the especially intense manifestation of these lethal pressures in one location. Or the most visible. They, yeah, the most right. visible, absolutely. And then- Or the most disruptive to- you know, flow of flow of the economy. Right. Mm-hmm. I mean, that's, right. Mm-hmm. that seems like a big part of it. Absolutely. Absolutely. And then they pop up elsewhere. And I think if we see these as disconnected events, then it's like feels one way. And I think if we say like, well, actually this is in a certain sense, a hydraulic system that it's going that by tamping down the pressure to kill here, it makes sense that it's going to pop up somewhere else. I think that helps us kind of have a kind of expansive notion of solidarity of like, we, we all, all of us who are subjected to this potential lethality should be uniting around this and changing the social architecture fundamentally rather than just being like, well, hey, I got mine. My kids aren't <laughs> aren't going to die of this. Um, right. I, I think it's for these reasons that it's really important that we kind of start here and retrace this, even though, as you know, as we've talked about, we've talked about social murder on the show before um, in, in some ways reference to this uh, Engels conditions of the working class in England is like increasingly, you know, death panel bingo card, basically. But <laughs> I think in past conversations that we've had, I think it's just really important to sort of bring back that. So this idea of social murder, one of the most important takeaways for me the last time that we talked about it is that it really is to put a fine point on, I think, something that has kind of come up already. It really is constitutive of 
capitalism and how capitalism works and many of the ways that it operates. And so I think what's interesting here is you're revisiting this idea of social murder within the context of the pandemic, but also trying to kind of unite it with a a few other named ideas from a a couple of different uh, people, including most notably, and I think in the title, the banality of evil. But I think that this we've been referencing sort of all the ways that this gets obscured or that we kind of there's a there's a social process, particularly, I think, done and spurred on by people in power that seeks to sort of obscure or, or, or blunt or hide those things, even as they remain ongoing or to maybe, you know, address some of the uh, worst or, as Phil said, most disruptive elements of them. And I think to bring this really to a very grounded place to the immediate present. I can't help but think, for example, of the continued fallout sort of of Biden's uh, declaration that the pandemic is over. And the fact that you see, as I think we tried to draw attention to in our conversation about it, you know, the fact that you see, as opposed to past things that people critical of the Biden administration have called gaffes or have called you know, an obvious optics or PR disaster or whatever for the Biden administration in the pandemic, you see this real hesitation or withdrawal from commenting on walking back or doing anything really feeding any sort of further speculation into this claim that the pandemic is over. I'm thinking of one in particular, which is uh, last week, I think on last Friday, Rochelle Walensky, the CDC director, for example, held a sort of press event where she talked to a couple of reporters and basically briefed them on their ongoing, again, sort of optics PR move to restructure the CDC and reorient its operations in light of uh, what they are sort of half admitting is a failed pandemic response. Although, of course, when they the things that they we, we can get into this later, but like the things that they point to as their their points of failure are largely like they say we didn't we failed to communicate properly or something not you know we set up conditions where mm-hmm. more people died than needed to but you know Olensky for example like won't say one way or another basically whether she has a problem with Biden's statement that the pandemic is over she said in that uh, press conference and said quote i think there are a lot of different ways to think about a pandemic being over I will not let go of the 350 deaths that we are having every single day, but it's still way less than the 3000 deaths that were occurring each day in January 2021. And, you know, it's interesting just to see how openly this sort of goalpost can shift. But I couldn't help but think about that comment as I was reading this, uh, this piece of yours or rereading it this morning and thinking about like, yeah, I mean, this is a perfect manifestation of this, like, you know, banality of evil argument used to dress up social murder. Mm-hmm. I, I couldn't agree more. And honestly, the main thing I want, I don't mean this flippantly. I, I tried to address this in the piece, actually. The main thing I want to do in response to stuff like that is just scream and <laughs> shout swear words because it is so appalling. Um, I, w- I want to, I'm going to back up just a, just one minute. Cause you, something you said already, I want to make sure that we really hit the social murder concept really clearly so b has an essay i think i I quoted an earlier thing i wrote that she uses this great phrase she says in capitalism you're entitled to the survival you can buy and so that and in capitalism there's no guarantee of having enough money and in fact there's sort of a systemic imperative that some people don't have enough money because if unemployment falls too low that becomes a problem and we're seeing this now in the conversation about inflation 
And so there's a sort of plan, a sort of systemic imperative that the government governments try to maintain because it causes other problems to keep a population who doesn't have quite enough money. So that's going to mean there will be people who can't survive. There's also a host of other pressures on businesses and to some extent on states to cut corners in various ways on the things that people need to survive. Um, like my insurance benefits keep getting worse every year. We've mm-hmm. actually had to have conversations about how much can our kids, our, our one daughter for a while was seeing a therapist and we had to have a conversation of like, how much can we continue to spend on her mental health care given the costs relative to her income, which is not because we don't care about our kid, but just because we don't have enough money. And and that's and there's lots of other examples. Like we know that when stress goes up, health suffers. And, and so this is um, a very concrete reality that's built into the fact that we sell our time for money to other people who give us commands and they're under pressure to make the things we do under their command worse over time. And the things that we need to live, we have to buy. And there's lots of pressures to make the things that we need to live either more expensive or lower quality over time. And that adds up to lethality. And so it's not a kind of general, vague, people want to kill each other. It's that the the forms of life that we're forced to endure make us die sooner and, and more painfully and so on. And the COVID pandemic absolutely manifests this. And so the part of what I was trying to think through in this this most recent essay, and I have a, like I touch on this in a couple things. I tend to do this when I'm when I'm stuck on a thing and I haven't fully grasped it. I tend to cycle back to it in, in various pieces from a different theoretical angle. And this time I was trying the banality of evil concept. You know, it, it, if everything we're saying is true, and, and it is, um, that's a system where um, powerful people part of their job is to manage all of these moving parts that are regularly killing people. And so there's right. a, on the one hand, a selection process for up the food chain for people who are capable of doing that managerial work. And uh, despite the terrible harms that it inflicts on people. Um, and there's a socialization process that acts on the people who are selected up the food chain. And so you start off probably kind of morally questionable in the first place if you end up in a position like Walensky's and you, by being in that world over time, you become even more morally questionable. And so you end up being someone who can say out loud, oh, I take those 300 deaths very seriously in the same breath that they're not taking them seriously and being like, but hey, it's what used to be so much worse. This is like a, I talk a little bit in the piece about like, I'm continually shocked by these people and I, and I want to <laughs> stop being shocked by it because the shock is really unpleasant. But like, they talk like, like it, it's like invasion of the body snatchers, except they're, they, they can talk <laughs> instead of just shriek. Like they're pod people, like the system selects for and generates pod people who look like us, but they <laughs> really don't engage in moral reasoning about human worth in the way that those of us who are politically on the side of humanity do like in that example you read out from Walensky is such a clear example because they engage in all of this rhetoric and all of this reasoning that's amounts to like, Hey, you know, it's unfortunate, I guess, but that's just minimizing or ignoring completely the harms and the deaths and they, I think, and they sort of have to do that in order to do their jobs, which is to keep the death machine running, right? Like yeah. Walensky's whole MO 
is rooted in the fact that what her job is is to avoid mitigating the pandemic and to and to tamp down political pressures that might corner the Biden administration into having to do things to mitigate the pandemic. And so, yeah. of course, she talks like a ghoul because she's objectively employed to be a ghoul. But like, I don't look at her on the news and see a Skeletor face. I look at her and I'm like, oh, she seems nice, you know, and I don't want to think that. But like, that's the that's how the the image comes at me ideologically. And she's got a public health degree. And I just assume public health is, is benign. It's an assumption I'm working through still. <laughs> But that like sets up this thing to be like these this the banality of the evil, I think, helps make the evil more shocking when it crops up. Well, I, I wonder if if it's worth kind of thinking about the shock or surprise that you're describing as in part a reflection of the fact that when we think about public health and public health agencies, like even without thinking about a kind of knee jerk, latent, like liberal conception of what the state is uh, kicks in. We're like, oh, it's a public health agency, right? So, uh, okay, so written somewhere in perhaps in stone, uh, <laughs> maybe on the walls of the agency, it's like there are some very powerful words and they say something about public health. And certainly I think the people who work there, including Walensky, really believe that is in fact what they are doing, what their entire career has been working around to protect. But like, I think the part of the shock and surprise, because uh, I, I share your, I, sh I share that entirely with you and like working with that kind of where my as my sort of like political evolution like that's I, that is also very natural for me that sh surprise um but then i think it's worth like the the intervention that i think is very helpful is to remember that that like in within capitalism the state has a very particular set of functions um and that when we see what agencies do on a day-to-day -day basis it, it's worth thinking about that as as kind of an epiphenomenon of what those functions are, what the relations are within the capitalist state, Ma mainly being the fact that like the, the capitalist state is this, you know, condensation of all of these relations over time in which there have been struggles, uh, class struggles. And that, you know, essentially the, what the, the whole purpose that, you know, capitalists uh, try to penetrate the state for is on the one hand to unite the, the various like fractions of capital. And then to at the same time, uh, to the extent possible, disorganize the working class in part by managing these crises that emerge. And so when you look at what the CDC is sort of recommendations for like uh, reform yeah. and, uh, you know, the, the things that they're sort of focused on, it has a way of reproducing this idea that the, the crises were really crises of finding the right behavioral way of like speaking to these sort of completely isolated subjects uh, in the world and like getting people to like do the best things for their health. Like the white house is now doing this, I think nutrition conference, <laughs> like oh, how can God. people like, you know, Oh, behave, just what we need, just more, what more we need right now. <laughs> right. Yeah. Like behave <laughs> more sort of healthily and more things like on that. Obesity too. Right. More right. War. I mean, so, but the question <laughs> is like, and, and to the extent that disparities are talked about in the world of health, it, it always like if you go and look at there, there's a lot of research on disparities in COVID. What there's not a lot of research on is like, and I mean, comparatively uh, in part because of how you get the data, which is itself sort of a reflection of the class relations uh, in capitalism, which is like a uh, lot less research on like workplace by workplace disparities. Mm -hmm. 
I mean, a lot of that research comes from like surveys in like a couple states, right? So I think that to me, like part of that surprise is that still in, in the popular imagination, uh, I think this is one place where the left probably still has a long way to go in terms of emphasizing some of these ideas about the state, which is that like the state it's, is is a terrain of struggle, specifically a terrain of class struggle and the people who populate it and the kind of ideas that dominate it are a reflection of that. And that does help to explain not only I think what's, you know, the particular outcomes in the United States are a function of like the weakness of some of the institutions in part because of the sort of innervation of, of class struggle, you know, and what roughly like the 1970s, you know, but that's also sort of the extent to which you see some convergence across capitalist democracies in terms of, in terms of the outcomes. So like that to me, like I, I share your surprise, but then I have to remember that like, oh yeah, my, my political development is very sort of belated in thinking of like, I still, I look at public health agencies. I'm like, yeah, well, of course they're going to, you know, do what I expect public health agencies to do. And of course, like, you know, we have this set of presumptions that are uh, sort of like, well, if you've got all of the bells and whistles, all of the sort of like, if you tick all of the boxes that will, then you must have a public health system. Uh, but, <laughs> yeah. but, yeah. but it's like, but that fundamentally that, that already, you've already gone down a, a theory laden path there in, in that assumption. Absolutely. And, um, in, in addition to kind of arriving at clarity, politically, like sort of like working out the theory and, and then hold, there's also a matter of holding on to it because we're, we're besieged by messages all the time, like in the press. And, you know, I, I work a white collar job where my boss is relatively friendly, you know, at the same time that they're doing in a way, which is it's its own set of challenges because they're, you know, we respect you. Thank you for being here. You can't require masks in the classroom. You know, they'll, <laughs> they'll, they don't, you know, they don't even, of course, they don't, they don't even have the decency to say it in that tone. They're like, right. You know, just a reminder to the community that everyone gets to make their own choice about masking. Uh, and like, so there's all of these messages, which like we could arrive at this theoretical clarity, but then like retaining it in this, it's embattled even after it's arrived. So it's like the the development is, it's a, you're talking about your own political development. I feel like the development is like a kind of like jagged curve. Like if we were to graph it, like there's a step forward and a step back in the face of this ongoing avalanche of ideology that comes at us. Um, I wanted to say, Phil, you know, as I said in, in earlier, a part of where I wanted to come on here is to, to think about this more. And, and the the latent liberal conception of the state is um, that's really helpful. And um, I would love if we could dig into that and, and kind of um, extend on that further, because I'm, I'm thinking out loud here. I have two thoughts on that. One is I think that there's a kind of I, I think that maybe has like a vertical dimension. Maybe that's not the right way to say it, but like like that that latent liberal conception of the state encourages us to look up at the government mm -hmm. with, with some myths, and, and that's my first thought. Like I'm shocked by that once by the I'm, I'm shocked by the depravity of the Biden administration to the degree that I'm interpolated into that latent liberal conception of the state. I think the flip side of that conception is also, and this is one that I'm not as interpolated into, but a lot of people are, is a kind of. A, a is a latent liberal conception of society where like social murder isn't a pattern. It's just dispersed behavior. And that I think lays the groundwork for people who are to our right, but some of whom are, you know, meanwhile, will kind of fall into the things of like, oh, well, 
the pandemic is because of individual masking choices. The pandemic is because of, you know, these various kinds of individualized accounts that don't get the power analysis correct. And I feel like that latent liberal conception is a sort of a complex of those things. Am I, am I making sense here, Phil? Yeah, absolutely. No, I, I think that um, when I talk about what that conception is, it's basically the fall of like, I don't have this. This is not very well theoretically developed, right? <laughs> this is this is Monday morning, but this is I, I, the, the, the conventional way. Kicking off the I, week with some thinking. It's awesome. Yeah. <laughs> the, you know, but I, I think the conventional way, it's like, well, the, the state is basically, and I should say this isn't, I should, latent is just shorthand. It's latent because I don't think about it very much. But if I <laughs> go back and think about my own training, like in political science, this is absolutely explicit, not latent. It yeah. is the theory that the state is, uh, relatively speaking, autonomous, directs actions in society, um, separate from the sort of relations of, of class struggle. And, and you know, when I was in graduate school, it was <laughs> sort of well understood that uh, this was the perspective that had won out in the late 1970s or early 1980s. <laughs> right. And that was, you know, um, now, and I think that's changing. You know, I, I hope, you know, at least disciplinarily. But I think what I mean by it is basically that when you look at a public health agency, you look at its structure, you look at the extent of its professionalization and you're like, OK, relatively insulated from class struggle. And I think part of the challenge there is in some cases it might actually look like it is, um, but you have to see it in part as part of a larger apparatus. Like you can't just look sort of agency by agency and say, Okay, well, that, you know, given who controls it and like, you know, although I think if you look at the CDC and you look at the extent to which there is this sort of like interpenetration, it's like we sort of set up the agency to be, quote unquote, politically responsive um, as we set up a lot of agencies uh, to be, you know, uh, under the under the auspices of, uh, you know, administrative procedure and public advice that seem like small D democracy type things, but what they are, and you know, there's a, an abundance of political science research to show this is that who takes advantage of those procedures to access the state. Right. Mm -hmm. uh, it is a very biased sample and it is primarily various fractions of capital. And you can see this in part, there's a really clear example that we talked about, I think in, in one of our year in review COVID episodes, which is like, okay, there are some OSHA regulations, but then the Office of Management and Budget has to review them. And, you know, who do you suppose is going in and, you know, intervening in that review process, right? <laughs> um, and so, like, this is where I, you know, and of course, like, one can know all of these things, but at the same time sort of forget or not at least have the implicit reminder when you look at what government does that, oh, yeah, as much as this might look like a bunch of different actors with their own sort of statutory mandates and professional obligations doing different things, you know, you have to sort of peel back the layers of the onion and see the class compromises or conflicts that are kind of wrenched out of what those statutory mandates are and exactly what the professional sort of incentives and, mm -hmm. you know, uh, apparatus that constructs the profession is. Well, uh, if, if I may, I think this is actually a really good moment to bridge to at least uh, a little bit of conversation of the great piece that you wrote for this uh, symposium too, Phil. Uh, but, but before I get, I guess, maybe into directly into that, I would just add to like, 
I keep thinking, you know, it's interesting that like Nate earlier, you brought up um, Invasion of the Body Snatchers. And I keep thinking like how ironic that is, because uh, we actually B and I just rewatched recently the 1978 Philip Kaufman version of that. And it's like very funny because like at least that version, it's, you know, as I was watching, I kept thinking like if for those who don't know, you know, the main characters of that are very competent public health employees who seem to have a uh, like rather rather robust, well-funded public health agency who are nevertheless who nevertheless fail right uh they lose out to the public health threat that is the body snatchers or whatever and i couldn't help but think about how much of a sort of disconnect or like uh cognitive dissonance or something i felt between like watching this sort of portrayal of like public health workforce on screen versus you know my lived reality what you know 50 years later what these agencies are actually like and this kind of the, what i'm getting to with this and and the relationship to like this funding issue and like what phil writes about is that i think there's a there's an interesting kind of like intersection between some of the points that both of you think raise in the symposium that is the um to take a concrete a very concrete example back to actually that same press conference that i mentioned before of uh rochelle Walensky talking about you know the agency restructuring or whatever one of the things that she pointed to uh, was, and this is, I think, a paraphrase. Uh, so this is an exact quote, but she says essentially that uh, a major issue is infrastructure. The money states and cities have not spent on beefing up their public health departments, data systems, and other <laughs> essential services. And this, I think, gets to a, a very interesting, I think, example, at least from my perspective, if I understand correctly, of these you know liberal fantasies of the state that we're talking about because um to just really contrast this against something that phil wrote in his piece how how sort of you know wrong it is for a figure like uh rochelle walensky or you know some official at the cdc to be able to say like oh it's the state and local public health departments you know problem or whatever for for not doing this not helping us um here's uh here's phil quote um, while short duration programs may assist in the immediate aftermath of a crisis, they do not allow for capacity building. Limited time horizons blunt the impact of local health departments, where, given fiscal constraints in states and cities, the majority of operating revenue often comes from categorical federal grants. As Louisiana's state health officer recently testified before the House Select Subcommittee on the Coronavirus Crisis, quote, a couple years is a common duration for program funding, and it's just very challenging to do anything substantial, anything long term, anything that builds capacity when you're hamstrung like that. I think this brings up such an important point, which, you know, is that in many ways, this kind of framework of crisis, right, which is also kind of thought of by a lot of people in the popular imaginary as what sort of makes the state respond to something, right? Like we conceptualize crisis as a kind of causal trigger of some kind. And I think it exceptionalizes social murder as this kind of thing that occurs only in crisis or occurs only in these very specific contexts. But I think, you know, Phil, as you're arguing in your piece, this is really the result of not only the way that capitalism is designed, but discrete decisions in the American approach to the state in which so many structures have been stripped bare or worn down. I mean, it really reminds me so much of, for example, like Lauren Berlant's work when Berlant talks about slow death. Um, the idea is that it's it's a population who's marked uh, for wearing out and that this sort of happens and is talked about in the terms of crisis or epidemic, you know, but that usually it's describing something that's endemic. Um, and and one of Berlant's 
critiques is that, you know, we think of violence as being experienced in these big dramatic events, but it's also just every day. And we think of violence as being the result of maybe uh, specific and discrete decisions or departments or figureheads. But in actuality, it's been structurally built in in a way that um, actually is way more primary underlying all of these other sort of moments that we think of as being the primary crisis. Yeah. Yeah. No, no, no. I, I think that that's, that's sort of what I mean by like that sort of seeing the state as like the condensation of all of these things over yeah. time. I, I, I've brought this show, example up on this show so many times um, that it's probably like, you know, uh, you know, real heads know this example, but like <laughs> I, this is just like doing some research on public health policy in like the fifties and I very have very strong memory of reading this like U.S. Chamber of Commerce National Association of Manufacturers advocacy piece against like federal funding for local mosquito abatement, right. uh, but as as the as the like the back door to um you know to socialized medicine or socialism or something <laughs> along those lines, and it's like well okay, let's think about why you know so much. Uh, public health activity continues to rely not just on it, like local administrative structures. One could say that that's like baked in from, you know, like the 10th amendment and like reserving a lot of power to the state and local governments. But the, um, you know, the, the financing piece, you know, like, you know, at at a time when uh, the federal government was providing a lot more sort of profusion of, of transfer programs uh, for education, uh, the beginning of Medicaid, a variety of other like social service programs like public health remains, you know, still uh, you know, primarily a, a state and local uh, kind of activity with sort of dribs and drabs of uh, federal funding uh, on top. And y- I think you have to see that as in part this conflict where organized uh, organized medicine, organized business is like very much shaping exactly who does what. Uh, within the state. And that does sort of, it means that even this idea of like getting public health departments back to their pre, you know, pre-crisis levels of funding and uh, staffing and things like that is kind of a, a bad target because in the <laughs> decades, the two decades uh, that preceded the pandemic, you had this huge decline of funding such that, you know, I, this, the example I always like is Cincinnati. That like in April of 2020, they like laid off a good chunk of their uh, public health department. And, you, and you know, and you can quibble over, you know, how important is it to have, you know, how important in the context of the pandemic is it just like public health departments? Because, of course, they're not necessarily the ones doing uh, all of the kind of uh, regulation of like workplace safety. That That's an OSHA thing. Um, but then you could, of course, also go look in, at what's happened uh, happened to OSHA enforcement uh, funding and things like that. I mean, that hardly even needs to be mentioned at this point. Um, but uh, but it, it is emblematic of this broader pattern. And, and you can hear it in a very, I think, a theoretical, plain spoken way in the context of what like state local health officials are saying about what all of these sort of categorical programs and sort of like special emergency responses I mean they're like you know that's not exactly what we need what we need is you know a completely reconstructed approach to health finance which just says like hey it's a really bad idea to rely on these really you know fiscally strapped uh state and local governments to fund you know the the primary workforce um that we're expecting to be sort of involved in you, you know pandemic 
uh, response, certainly initially and, and uh, is in, in addition to a variety of other sort of preventative uh, measures that those departments do kind of all the time. And instead what we get, I mean, and the thing is, you know, if I had to like rank the number of things I would be emphasizing in terms of like response to the pandemic, like what, what policy should be con- Congress be like enacting now, like CDC reconstruction in the way that Walensky's talking about it. And this, <laughs> like that wouldn't even be in the top five, Like you know, like yeah. the health finance piece would be probably number one or number two. Um, you know, uh, Medicare for all would probably be the number one or number two and paid leave and things like that. But like, I, you know, this seems like window it's, I have a hard time seeing the CDC reconstruction thing as basically a way of saying we're doing something and just sort of like set dressing for the fact that this, you know, that's probably all that they're going to be. You know, that's all that they see themselves as sort mm-hmm. of able to do or desiring of doing willing. Uh, or or what or willing to willing to do in a way rather than a, uh, you know, and, and a real sort of like assessment of like, hey, exactly why did why did we fail? Well, as you all pointed out before, Walensky is a political appointee. And given the direction of the pandemic under Biden, the last people who I would want having any capacity to make long term changes in, in public health infrastructure would be uh, a political appointee of, of Biden. <laughs> um, so I think like, you know, in addition to where it is restructured, the CDC fall in the list of priorities. I think the content of that restructuring is likely not going to be one that is making anything better uh, in any substantive way. It's going to be probably um, locking in the things that have facilitated all the death that they've uh, helped create. Oh, yeah. I mean, uh, while, while we're on that, actually, and I'd like to get back to the big picture in a second, I, I think. But actually, you know, it occurs to me that we haven't talked about the content of some of what um, they've talked about in terms of what the re- that restructuring would actually look like. And for the most part, I think that's because, you know, I think you I think, you know, if you read one thing about it or you see just the announcement that they made in August, like you kind of get the picture. They basically are saying, you know, they're not really admitting culpability for the fact that like the actual failures of not just the CDC, but the Biden administration in general in terms of the pandemic and and all of that. They are mostly throwing to, you know, the idea of like, oh, we're all our messaging was bad and so on and so forth. And, and not to just let that be, I guess, like uh, to exist only in shorthand. What I mean by that is the thing that I think we've um, criticized them for before, which is they tend to. And I imagine that this will probably eventually get us back to on the like the, the bigger picture stuff. But they tend to, I think, when admitting culpability point to, well, our uh, the, the science was right or our, our message was or our sorry, our, um, our, our, you know, what we were trying to do was correct, but people just didn't understand the message or something. Mm-hmm. And thus they have to, and thus they have, you know, to um, change the messaging. The thing that I want to highlight, because I've seen almost no one talk about this. If you read the document that came out in September 1st, that is the, uh, I forget what it's called exactly. It's like, you know, um, oh yeah, moving forward. If you see, <laughs> if you, I, I knew I had to find it because it was funny. Um, if you read the document they released on September 1st, the CDC's, it's called like the moving forward document talking about the, some of the changes that they want to make. I how much they paid a consulting firm for that name. Yeah. Um, but I want to highlight a couple, just literally two things that are in this, because I think, again, these are things that I haven't really seen a lot of scorn uh, directed at the CDC over, because this, you know, clearly is they're not identifying the right problem. And I think they're leaning into some of the, uh, they're really leaning into some of the issues that we've already had with them over the course of this. But so 
among other things that are things like you might expect where they're saying, you know, as they've very publicly broadly communicated, uh, you know, stuff like, oh, we need to simplify our guidance or like make it so that it's like more clearly understandable guidance or whatever. The first point, here's one of the ways that they think that they should do that. Um, Explore the use of an evidence-based rating system, assigning different levels of confidence to scientific findings similar to other federal government agencies. In other words, like if you're familiar with like star systems, the Medicare star rating system, or whatever, for yeah, exactly. Nursing homes and long-term care. So basically, there that point is them saying, well, you know, we could when there's new guidance or when there's new kind of like scientific evidence about an outbreak or something, we could do a star rating system for it. We could do a rating system to see what how we, confident we are about how much we know about the anyway. What if we uh, made obviously the that's CDC not, like uh, Rotten Tomatoes? You know, what oh if we God. what if we took reviews on policies um, like um, Amazon reviews or something? There we go. That's fixed. Political economy fixed. And then the just the really most questionable one and the one that gives me the most pause is is their recommendations the C- in the CDC's report their own sort of recommendations for how they should restructure how how they should develop policies or how they should implement um, guidance documents how they should like come to drafting and creating guidance documents for stuff like COVID for example and I'm going to read what is one of their takeaways basically and I just want to reflect for a second whether it's just the you know the four of us reflecting on this or whether it's just you the listener or something reflect on how fucking horrible this sounds um so first of all they say that they should reform things so that when they're drafting guidance documents of course they document the latest scientific information available and then quote develop a set of options minimum two to implement the latest scientific information each implementation option should include a set of pros and cons and a discussion of its practical feasibility net benefit slash harm alignment with current public health emergency guidance goals and objectives and impact on populations share proposed options with key internal and external stakeholders so do a public basically do basically they're saying like we did not sufficiently do the thing that all of the worst COVID is overblown cranks have accused us of, which is consider the costs and benefits of implementing public health guidance. I'm, 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 I'm stammering here. Cause like yeah. the, the, the numbers of the dead, you know, like the, 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 the children who are orphaned and the, and the, these people are like, we need to approach that with a sound cost benefit calculation in mind. Like, it's just like so astonishingly morally bankrupt. And as we talked before, you know, I don't want to be astonished. Like in a certain sense, I shouldn't be astonished, but but like it's that these people can like say this stuff in seriousness and that they're in contexts where like someone raised this in a meeting and everybody <laughs> looked thoughtful and, and frowned and nodded, like, oh yeah, hmm. You know, yeah, work that up into a document, circulate that. Like it's it just speaks to like the rot, you know, and the um the again, the moral bankruptcy of so many of the circles that from which these documents originate. Well, I think it also speaks to what their real priority here is and what Absolutely. they really feel that they did wrong. Who they're restructuring in response to, yeah. Yeah. I mean, one thing that struck me is I know that, you know, I like 
part of what you were just reading right now, Artie, was them talking about how they wanted to release guidance, but it was also them saying that part of their failure was that they had not sufficiently primed people to accept the guidance they were releasing from a PR standpoint. So in one sense, I see this as a kind of internal cost-benefit discussion, but like the mention of how this would then be used, uh, shown to stakeholders, et cetera, you know, that to me really indicates that part of what they see as what they did wrong here, quote unquote, if that's really even how, part of what they're, you know, saying that they're owning up to, let's put it that way, because <laughs> that's more accurate, is that they didn't work hard enough to make people accept what they were saying was the right thing to be saying, right? Like that, and that, that fundamentally, I think, does in some way definitely like exist as subtext to a lot of the kind of sort of things that Walensky over months now has really capitulated to. Like if we think of like other times she's gotten in hot water, right? You know, when she says, oh, like I wasn't trying to be weird or or tell people not to mask by saying mask masking is the scarlet letter of the pandemic. You know, this is like really all a big misunderstanding. And so it, it really kind of reminds me of that rhetoric we used to hear all the time of like, oh, the real problem is that Walensky's not media trained. You know, <laughs> like if that's yeah. the takeaway, like we have I a mean, really prop we have a big problem. I mean, okay, like the the other way of looking at this is like, and this is not just a, a problem with pandemic responses, you see this all over the place, is that like um whatever, trust in government is is very low, okay, yeah. in, in the United States. Um, lower than a lot of whatever peer countries. Um, and, and it's like, okay, why? Like, okay. You have to have a theory of that, right. That is a little bit richer than, oh, well, it was the CDC's messaging. If it were just a problem of the CDC's messaging, then you would see better relationship between government and society in a bunch of other domains too. But guess what? You don't. Why do you think that might be? Right. Like, why do people not have a great sense of like generalized public trust or solidarism, willingness to do things that are not outside of their, you know, direct benefit? And more importantly, what explains why in the heat of the moment there was like in, in the immediate days after the pandemic, there actually was uh, a great deal of almost emergent solidarism. Um before, you know, the handlers got sort of, you know, before, before in a way the different tendrils of the capitalist state sort of got control over it. I mean, that just is, is to me like illustrative of, it's like, okay, you're going to like change some things about like advisory processes. Essentially, you're going to change who does what paperwork, who <laughs> consults with whom and and whatever. And you're going to expect to see a Delta uh, on the other end in terms of what, I mean, like that's, that's, that's the point is like, okay. I'm going to, um, I don't know, like I have a migraine. I'm going to drink some water and hope that my migraine goes away. You know what I mean? Like it's so this is really thought provoking. And what you said as well, B, thank you for all this. I, um, clarifying for me and I don't want to lose the thought. So if you're sorry to jump in, but, um, I, I, um, I'm thinking back again to this, what you called the liberal conception. And Phil, you said before, well, it wasn't latent. It was explicit in my training, but it becomes latent for you as someone who's reasoned your way out of your training politically, you know, myself too. And I think part of what's going on in all of this is in what already read out and what B said is I, I think there really is this sort of effort 
of like, how do we get the populace into one headspace, not another? And right. I, I liked what you said of kind of emergent solidarism. And it really is an ideological project. And, and I'm inclined to say that this sort of the, the liberal headspace that they're trying to get people to enroll in ideologically, I think, has at least two facets. And one is a facet of a social theory. And so and like Phil, like your piece is really good in the in the symposium where you talk, for example, in lots of concrete detail about health financing and and loss of health insurance, employer based health insurance is literally killing people. And 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 you talked previously earlier in, in our conversation about this, about we need to not see the CDC in isolation that really institutions form ensembles and, and it, they operate as ensembles and produce effects. And I think in, in being already you have your a line in your piece about health. Health is not um, an individual condition. Um, health's not a personal trait. It's an economic system. And that's a sort of saying, let's, and I think the stuff I was saying about social murder is likewise, those ensembles of institutions are really rooted in a, in a, a social system altogether. And that is a set of social explanations, which is just not the liberal one. And so I think there's on the one hand, like they're offering us a set of tools and a map of society that's inaccurate. Like People don't have the problem is people don't understand. People are stupid and we use too big of words. People are individually selfish. And I think the other facet of this, and this is sort of where I was grappling with in the thing I wrote, is, the, is this moral facet. These sort of there are these moral valuations. And where I continue to be horrified is in the this liberal conception, while it sounds very polite and they talk about civility and so on, is one that really serves to help the architects of mass death organize mass death and live with themselves. So, and I think that that's another facet in as sort of, they try and get us into this headspace is they're trying to give us a set of social explanations and trying to give us a set of moral impulses. And I think maybe where this keeps coming back for me is you said, Phil, it's wasn't latent, and it, but it, it is for you individually latent. Um, and it comes back. That's absolutely my experience is I think maybe it's just that, you know, we don't have enough of robust counter institutions yet. I think that we're getting there. I mean, the, the fact that some of us, notice it and are surprised and push this liberal conception back out of our heads for a while. And then it creeps back in through ideology is really in a certain sense, a high quality problem. Like I know a lot of people for whom they just see the world in these liberal ways and they don't get why I'm so mad, you know? Um, but I, I wonder if like, that's a, also a part of the issue is like the, as maybe as, you know, trying to be optimistic as like movements grow and become more of a counterforce in society that will be more robustly rooted in our minds and we won't have this, continued kind of creeping you said the, the government got its tendrils around you know the solidaristic stuff that was arising maybe we can eventually get to where we can sort of prevent those tendrils from creeping back in but but i do i do think that's a, a, a really key piece of the project is it really is this project of getting its tendrils around individual minds and shared cultures of, of solidarity yeah i mean it's it's always fascinating to me that like you know i think uh both capitalists and you know members of the quote unquote, like conservative movement, uh, they have a very, in a way, a, a very sort of, uh, Marxist understanding uh, of the state. They understand what this, they understand that the state is a, is a train of class struggle. You, you know, it's like regulated industries, pr professionals go, go into government without, you know, without blinking an eye. And at the same time, I was just reading about a, uh, a training program for pu future public servants at, uh, where else, but Hillsdale college, um, you know, it, which is this, I don't know if people are familiar with like this, this like bastion of, um, conservatism in, in Michigan and they have this, you know, now new public servant training program, but like th there's, um, 
like the the ideologies that public servants go into the state with and what they carry with them about what the purpose of of government and for is for is you know illustrative to uh the way that they end up behaving in those positions like if you believe that you're just the the whole purpose is to like you know just be good at your job and you know it's like that that there's not a class struggle involved in what it is you're doing you will behave a particular way like while serving out your you know what i mean it's there's i mean and yeah. that's and that's sort of self-evident right but um but on the the broader sense like it it does matter um it does matter um because the, you know alternative institutions are are significant in you know where political power comes from it, it's like very significant that you know we are at a a low point in terms of union density not just because of the workplace you know implications of that but also because of the way that unions uh you know like historically like play a role in helping to uh, situate and facilitate like uh, people going into government with a particular understanding of class and, and class struggle like that, that to me is, is significant. And so like, you know, in the absence of those sort of institutions that can actually help to populate the state and challenge it both from within and without like that, you know, it's, you know, we're going to get the Walensky happy talk, I suppose it's, Absolutely. And I, I think, you know, I try to talk about this in my, my thing too. I think for those of us, you said, you suggested that there's a, for the people who actually hold power and for the right, they have a kind of clear analysis. And I think the implication you alluded to this earlier is that maybe on the left, we could have a more widespread and hegemonic corresponding clarity of analysis. And I think one of the things that I keep falling into is this sort of fantasy. I talked about it through this Steve Earle song of like, if we could just really look Walensky in the face and have a conversation and it'd be a hard conversation, you know, like I'd probably swear at her, but like, if we had a hard conversation, but still conversation, she would get it. And there's still this sort of implication that a certain chunk of power for people that they could get it. And that it feels like justice would be them getting it. But like you were just talking about with the, that training process and so on, like they're, like a whole lot of forces that make them like constitutionally unable to get it. And that was kind of where I was kind of flippantly was saying they're kind of like pod people, but, but that's sort of real, like, like this is not a symmetrical, rational, moral dialogue. These are people who are in a certain sense, kind of dead inside. And, you know, I, I talk about it in the Hannah Arendt terms of like, it's a cultivated thoughtlessness. It's a willful refusal of thought and so for those of us who think a lot about this to be like, if we could just get into a certain kind of reason, reasoning space, even if a heated one, they would then begin to reason with us. I find that myth really perniciously creeps, creeps back in. And I think like that's a, a really important point of clarity that really what we're talking about is social movements forcing the state to do things that it will actively not want to do, right. not convincing anyone in yeah. power to do things because it's right. And I think that that is like a really simple difference. But I think a really fundamental one that I find myself continually kind of drifting into the wrong position on. Well, yeah, academics are re- like routinely <laughs> like, you know, it's like, oh, we'll go in there cool. and like tell the administration like, we're, yeah, we have good ideas. Like we wrote a memo. OK, great. Yeah. Have fun with that. Like, Well, I think one of the things that I really appreciated, Nate, is this kind of like engagement with this idea of like, oh, well, you know, what do we actually do to fix this, right? Because I think so so much of the ways that we think of solutions to power are just as limited as the ways that we think of like how power works. And one of the things that I appreciated about this piece that you wrote, Nate, was specifically the engagement with 
the discomfort you had over your own feelings and and reactions to this, because I think this is really important, too, if we sort of think about what we actually think that we can do, right? Like as not just individuals, but sort of as a left or as people who organize, that's obviously incredibly influenced by the way that the state makes us feel about the kind of power that we have. And so it's a kind of chicken and the egg situation in a way. But ultimately, like, I don't I don't think that people totally realize the way that essentially like the state's position is prioritizing disruptions to solidarity right now. Like if you think about like the CDC, the CDC is not organizing guidance at the kind of level, right, that would make it at all possible for, uh, for example, like immunocompromised workers to just go to their job without worrying about shit. Right. And so this is a kind of like that's a kind of level of policymaking that they've completely taken off the table and said is like not pop, like not possible in our reality. Right. And so as a as a frame and as a kind of mode of the state, like the refusal of that capacity to create kind of solidaristic policies and the need for targeted policies as being somehow better or, you know, whatever. That's, I think, like really important to engage with, like how that makes you feel. Well, I mean, all of this also, though, is why I think it's very important. This is why I think it's important to highlight the maybe the second point in that CDC document that I brought up and also maybe to circle back to to the thing that uh, Phil mentioned that has kind of come up a couple of times, which is the idea that there was, you know, maybe a moment kind of early on where there was uh, more of a more of a sort of uh, open and allowed like social production of moments and encouragement to be in in solidarity with each other over something like the pandemic and that that was very quickly sort of captured when you had for instance i mean we talked through fucking the entirety of 2020 basically about all of these like you know corporate groups for example or like think tanks or whoever who are pushing out um you know, roadmaps to reopening or, or whatever, and how quickly, you know, basically figure out how quickly they could undo it, um, how quickly they could like get to that point of, you know, the social production at the end of the pandemic. But again, you know, that's why the, this, this second point from the CDC thing, um, not to, not to dwell on it too much, but I think it's, a, it's very relevant to think about how much the idea that for instance, who they're maybe listening to, who the CDC did or has sort of listened mm-hmm. to so far in terms of their advocacy reflects more of, um, I'm, I'm thinking of, for example, that piece uh, written by fucking Josh Barrow that we read a while ago. Um, there's a part in that where he says, you know, the, you know, the issue isn't that people don't under is not that, you know, people do not understand that COVID is a risk. The issue is that, uh, quote, they don't necessarily share the value judgments or the cost benefit analyses that prevail among the very peculiar set of people who get masters of public health degrees, unquote. Yeah. And so to me, hearing then the CDC say, frankly, not too much later, and not that it's a reaction to Josh Barrow, Josh Barrow is, these are words that are just like echoed throughout. We've, we've read, I've, I have read, I cannot count how many versions of the same fucking argument over the years. Mm -hmm. Um, even just the ones that I've literally read aloud on this show, you know, but to, to then see the CDC saying, that's why I guess I want to underscore that to see the CDC saying, then what we should do is we should make minimum, a minimum of at least two options or something for what the guidance could be, what the public health guidance could be based on the evidence, then address various stakeholder groups, talk to them uh, publicly, show them the, you know, 
have discussions with them about the various costs and benefits towards doing any sort of, you know, future policy or, or mitigations or, or uh, public health guidance or anything like that. And then, you know, basically allowing, in a way, it's like them saying, okay, so you know that moment of solidarity that we all had in 2020? Well, what if we got the people who then immediately stepped in to stifle all of that involved in the process earlier? You know, what if before <laughs> right. we made the guidance, you know, maybe we, we maybe we, we simply, uh, the, the CDC, f you know, failed at its, uh, at this huge generational test of its leadership or whatever, because we simply did not, uh, you know, bring in industry groups to talk about the costs and benefits of doing, you know, fucking mask mandates or, or anything. Um, <laughs> you know, it's, a, it's, it's absurd to, to say it, but that's really, I mean, that's like what, that's what, that, that's what they that's basically what they're saying yeah. you know and, and if we did that people, no one would be mad or at least no one who counts to be mad and the poll yeah. numbers would be several points higher <laughs> right no and and this is what i feel like you also see iterated often sometimes even in in critiques of um the covid response right which is that you know people kind of chalk things that are state capacities up to something that can be managed at the interpersonal level even sort of framing COVID organizing or organizing around like COVID protections to be something that's highly individuated, even in trying to like couch that in a structural critique. And I think part of what, you know, is kind of going unacknowledged so often um, when we talk about power in the state is how we are so otherwise often just completely exhausted by the required forces of capital extraction. You know, this idea of like participation in society soaks up all of this kind of practical energy, right? And who is left with the agency to actually act? Well, it's people like the CDC, right? And so those kinds of frameworks that if we start to acknowledge, you know, part of the problem with the response is not necessarily that like if simply more people bothered Biden, things would be okay, right? Like that there may not be a uh, maximum amount of people that would bother Biden to get Biden to do anything similar to the thing that, you know, we discussed, which was like some people who are saying like kind of horrifically that there was some amount of children that would die, at which point people would broadly realize that COVID is dangerous for children. But that's never that's not going to happen. Right. Because well, she's jaw. when it gets worse, Congress will fund it. Exactly. As Phil's brought up multiple times. Yeah. And so, you know, I think it's really important to recognize that part of the state's job is to locate authority in the agencies, to locate authority in the cost benefit analysis and to hide the fact that so much of our practical energy and our like moral energy and our intellectual energy is sucked up by forces of capital extraction that just reinforce these priorities at the end of the day and itself forecloses on a lot of the things that like we do organize for in the first place. Absolutely. And, and paradoxically, even as that happens, they also want to locate, the only thing they want to locate away from themselves is responsibility. And so they'll like exhaust us and ignore the solidarity and try to prevent it, but also be like, the pandemic happened because of people's beliefs. The pandemic <laughs> happened because of your behavior. Um, and I, th I think that's also the thing. I think there are some critics of the administration who um, kind of get into a despairing position because they fall into a kind of folk social theory of society's a bunch of plus ones and that, as if this is a democratic project. You know, they kind of get be like, oh, well, people are tired of masking and, and so on. And so, well, 
since when has the administration, since when has the government ever stopped doing a thing simply because most people, especially working class people are tired, are tired of it, you know? Um, but I think that's a really common misconception that they also, that they very, that I think they very deliberately cultivate. I think if we look at some of their proxies, you know, who um, have been on some of the phone calls with Ja and before Ja with Zients, I mean, they, they have, that message was very deliberately crafted. I feel like they were telling me I was tired of masking before I was even as masking frequently in public. Right. Absolutely. No. And I, I think this is really why, like the bottom line at the end of the day, ultimately that, that all, all of us end up arguing in our, our pieces is that ultimately these um, kind of small changes like reorganizing the CDC or changing guidelines or, you know, finding the perfect organizing model or whatever, that these actually materially don't even begin to approach the scale of analysis appropriate to comprehend like the actual way that power is working in the COVID response right. and the actual sort of forces that of, of biopolitical power that we're going up against. I mean, it, it's like the classic way that like Foucault explains like biopower, right? Like it's very hard to see and you have to talk a lot for a long time in order to sort of suss out where it is. And that's exactly what's going on here, you know? Absolutely. If, if I may, as we were talking, there's, there's a band I really like. They're a Canadian punk rock band called Propagandi. And I, I've thought about lyrics of theirs over and over again throughout the pandemic. They're an anarchist band and they have a, a song called Supporting Cast. And the, the first line is, uh, when the credits finally roll for this, the worst story ever told, don't bother sifting through the through the names for yours or anyone you know. The idea being that we, we're all just the supporting cast. And, and I think that that, as we've been talking, I was thinking about like, if you were to take these various administration pronouncements and like draw them or paint them or make them a film and sort of then look for like, where would we and all of our loved ones fall in that depiction of the world and be like, you know, we're, we're the pawns in the chess game or like, we're not even, you know, that. And and I think that's a thing that's true. And the administration says that, and there's the sort of conveys the powerlessness, but then they simultaneously deny it and be like, you all matter. And in fact, you craft policy by your aggregated preferences. <laughs> and I think that's like- By voting. Yeah, absolutely. And I think like that's part of why this is so crazy making of like, cause they send us these contradictory messages that also, as you were saying, B, are so exhausting. Got a problem with social murder? Go vote. I mean, I think that's the <laughs> perfect right. place to leave it, right? Yeah. Well, if you'd like to follow Nate, he is on Twitter at N underscore hold. Nate, thank you so much again for coming back on the show to talk about this piece. It's always so great to have you on. So thanks for being here. I really appreciate your time. And listeners, if you'd like to support the show and get access to the second weekly bonus episode, become a patron at patreon.com slash death panel pod. And if you'd like to help us out a little bit more, share the show with your friends, post about your favorite episodes, pre-order Health Communism, or request it at your local library, and follow us at DeathPanel underscore. Patrons will catch you Monday in the patron feed. For everyone else, we will see you next week. As always, Medicare for all now, solidarity forever. Stay alive another week. <laughs>